We're going to read this morning from uh, Matthew chapter 5 before going over to 1 Samuel 22. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 3. Jesus speaking, what we call the Sermon on the Mount. He says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when men revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely on account of men. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do thank you so much for the life that you um, have offered to us as we place our faith in you for salvation, that you are life itself. And we gather together in your name that we might hear you, be taught of you, and that your life, Lord, would be expressed in us for your glory. So we pray, God, that you would truly work in us for your name's sake, and that this world would see Christ as they look at your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Be seated. I wanted to start out this morning before looking more at the life of David in 1 Samuel 22 with what is um, one of the most um, really fascinating and impactful chapters of Scripture here, um, Matthew chapter 5, the first of three chapters that we call the Sermon on the Mount. There is nothing normal about what Jesus is describing here in terms of the world. Um, it was Watchman Nee that a number of years ago, the, the, the Chinese believer who wrote a book called The Normal Christian Life. I highly recommend it if you've never read it. And the title is a bit deceiving because you'd think the way that we use normal, we use it in the sense of average. This is what, this is, this is what you could, should expect. But he understands normal as being not the average Christian life, but the life that God intended for every Christian to live. And that normal Christian life is what Jesus is, is depicting here in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. It is the normal relationship with Christ, what it would look like. It is normal, Jesus says, to be blessed if you are poor in spirit. It is normal to know the blessing of God if you mourn, and they're all through these Beatitudes. Later in the sermon, in this chapter, he says, again, normality, you have heard verse 38 that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist him who is evil, but whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. That is normality, Jesus says. And we go, really? Anybody ever slapped you on the cheek before? The normal response is to say, here's the other one. And then, if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, give him your coat. If anybody shall force you to go with you one, go with him one mile, go with him two. Give to him who asks of you and do not re- turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies 
and pray for those who persecute you. That is the normal Christian life because that is normality for Christ. This is his life. And what is true of him, he wants to be reproduced and manifest in each of our lives. It's not average, but this is the normal Christian life. In doing so, loving our enemies, praying for those who persecute us, you will be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. He is not just good to those who love him, but to all people. We don't have a very good understanding of normality, and we spend so much of our lives doing what we do because other Christians do it, because we've seen it done, we've Um, because of what's been modeled for us. And God wants to break the mold of this world in our lives. When it comes to our own families, our own personal lives, our businesses, everything that we're involved with, God says, I don't care what the mold says. I don't care what everybody else says. We're going to be something different here. I want to reproduce my life, my responses, my values, everything that is true of me, I want to be reproduced in you. And it will make us appear to be extremely peculiar when, in fact, we're living the normal life that God has designed for mankind. Normal temperature is 98.6, so I've been told. Go into a hospital, emergency room, when there's a flu outbreak, and the average temperature in that emergency room is probably not going to be 98.6. Normal blood pressure is supposed to be something like 110 over 70. Go to a cardiac ward in a hospital, and you may see something quite different. So average is not what we're looking at. But God wants what he defines as normality, where the life of Christ is truly reproduced in each of those who are called by the name of Jesus. So let's look at 1 Samuel chapter 22 and see how God gets us to normality. We've been seeing here, the author here of 1 Samuel is placing Saul and David in juxtaposition with each other. There'll be one statement, one chapter even on Saul, and then the next on David. And we're seeing these men um, as light and darkness in contrast to each other. Saul, we're seeing, is losing his mind. He has become eaten up with envy in jealousy, anger, suspicion, absolutely committed to his own well-being, throwing spears at a man who has never done anything wrong with him because he's jealous of him, and even throwing a spear at his own son. The man is losing his mind. He is vindictive. He is judgmental. He is unfair. He is unjust. He, he is murderous. And that is how most leadership functions. Just cross it and you'll find out. The nicest of people in leadership, cross them. And many times we'll see the same disposition that we see in Saul. That is not normality. It may be average, but it's not what God means for normal. And so when we start here in chapter 22 of 1 Samuel, it says, So David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's household heard of it, they went down there to him. Why? 
just to pay him a social visit. David's living in a cave. Let's go fix it up for him. Let's take some furniture, maybe some hangings on the wall. Maybe we just paint on the walls for him. First caveman. This wasn't a social visit. Saul, acting as the average leader at this time acts, sees David as being a threat. And so the normal thing to do in the world is to extinguish the threat. And that means even the family. Because one of the best ways to crush the thought of rebellion is not to hand out justice an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but to kill everybody who is even remotely connected with the rebel. In North Korea today, we are told that if you are found in possession of a Christian track, not only will you go to jail, your children will go to jail, your parents will go to jail, your brothers and sisters will go to jail. They will round up everybody who has any blood relationship with you. Three generations will go to jail. That is not an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That is a dictatorial power saying, I will countenance not even a hint of threat, and I'll do whatever I can to crush it. There's no reason to really think that David would have ruled any differently. When all the cultural pressure is this is how it's done. And David is going to be carved out of that. And God's going to raise up a ruler who is normal by God's standards and abnormal by the standards of the world. And so his family's coming to him because they're in fear of their lives. In verse 2, and apart from his family, in addition to his family, everyone who is in distress and everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was discontented gathered to him in the cave. Wouldn't you have loved to have been in that cave? And we're told there were 400 of them, and David became their captain. Wow, what a motley crew. These are the down-and-outers of society. These are the ones who are living in fear of Saul. Life has not gone well for them. Why would God be doing this to David? I mean, if you're going to be suffering, maybe, I know, misery loves company, but this much company, and you're in charge of them all? You think life would have been better for David, easier for David, if he just could have been down there in the cave with his family. Not all these other 400 malcontents. But God is doing something in David. And I have to believe that part of it, at least, is that David, in his own suffering the abuse of of Saul's leadership, is seeing that it's not just him who suffers, but there are hundreds of people. And this 400 would have been just a small sampling of them. There are hundreds of people in this country that are suffering because of that style of leadership, which is so normal concerning what the world says is normality. And David's seeing, is this the kind of leadership I want to portray? Do I want to replicate what Saul is or to be a different kind of leader? One, in fact, he's never seen. Saul, David in his lifetime, he didn't didn't know the person of Jesus Christ. He had never seen a different kind of leadership. What Saul was doing 
was normal for this time. But God wants a man who's not going to be that way, whose life is going to be truer to Christ than it would be to anything in this world. I see here, he's in God's schoolhouse. There's no manual for David, how to be king. There's very little, there are just only a few hints in the Pentateuch that there will even be a king. And all David has to go by is the king, King Saul, and all the kings of the world. He doesn't know what normality before God is to look like. So God's teaching him, building it in him. So that day when the crown's put on his head, it doesn't go to his head. He remembers his days of living in a cave. And when that crown goes on his head, he's going, this is the grace of God. And when people turn against him, he remembers what it's like to be persecuted. And he doesn't become a persecutor. David will never be a persecutor. He was one who was persecuted. David will never be an abuser. He was one who knew what it was like to be abused. God is is doing this in David's life to raise up a man who will be different from everyone else around him. Keep in mind that while David is becoming a different kind of leader, the leader, Saul, is doing nothing but cursing him and, and maligning him and tearing him down. I don't know, none of us would know what percentage of the nation believes what Saul is saying. But David's not out there blowing his own horn. He's simply responding to what God is placing in his life by faith. And God is working in him the kind of leadership that is so true of Christ and untrue of this world. I know... I am no great leader. I tell people all the time I am not gifted in leadership. And I find it a bit humorous that God would put me in leadership. Um, It's amazing. God truly has a sense of humor. But I'm seeing over the years, um, reading books on leadership, there's a value in that. Um, watching other people who have, who have led well, great value in that. Um, but the big thing is responding in faith to all that God brings into our lives. And he will direct our steps. He will teach us. He will give us wisdom. And though there is no parenting manual, God will raise us up to be a different kind of mother and father than what our own mothers and fathers were. And give wisdom and give grace. And we're going, we look back and go, that's amazing. We don't have to just be what our parents were because of the grace of God. If we will listen to him, allow his spirit and his word to guide us and teach us, we aren't doomed to repeat the mistakes of those who came before us. I hear more often than I, than I care to different folks whose parents have made mistakes. Divorce and remarriage, typically. And the kids go, I'm afraid. 
I'm afraid that I'm going to just do what my parents did. I can't tell you how many times I've heard that. I'm afraid of getting married, afraid of entering into a relationship, that my life would be a re just simply reproduce what I had modeled before me. But in Christ, we don't need to be afraid of the mold of the world, even when that mold is our own family. But we truly, by the grace of God, can live lives that reflect Jesus. And there is no explanation for it than a life of humble surrender to him, faith in him. And God does something different than the world, but consistent with Christ. I would like to read some thoughts here by Alan Redpath on these who are distressed in debt and discontented that come to David. Redpath sees a great parallel here with Christ and all who come to him. In fact, in one of the statements that he makes, he says, the only people who come to Jesus are the distressed, debtors, and discontent. That we'd never come to him if those things weren't true of us. But he says, just as in David's day, there is a king in exile, speaking of Jesus, who is gathering around him a company of people who are in distress, in debt, and discontented. He is training and preparing them for the day when he shall come to reign. Therefore, the vital issue is, if you understand the spiritual significance of our day, in whose kingdom are you living? To which king are you giving your allegiance? Before whose authority are you bowing? Which master are you following every day? See, these 400 men said, we'd rather be with David than be under Saul. And in, and in going to David, they were renouncing the authority, the, 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 the reign of Saul, and accepting in surrender to David another authority. They made David their captain. Redpath continues and it says, The discontented, they grumble about their troubles and complain about their lot, but how few of them run to the one who said, If any man is thirsty, let him come to me. The one who said, Take my yoke and learn of me, all who are weary and heavy laden. These are the kind of men who came to David, distressed, bankrupt, dissatisfied, these are the kind of people who come to Christ, and they are the only one people who come to him, for they have recognized their distress, their debt, and their bankruptcy, and are conscious that they are utterly discontented. Why did they come? I suggest that they came because they believed David was God's anointed king, and that he had a right to rule over them. May I suggest, too, that the men coming to David not only believed in his cause, but they decided for him. Belief led to action. They not only heard, but they obeyed. It is one thing to believe in the coming kingdom of Christ. It is another to take your stand for him and identify yourself with him. In deciding for David, please notice that these men passed from one kingdom to another. Decision for Christ means separation from the world. The involvement of the whole personality leaving the service of the devil for the service of the king of kings. These men believed on David. They decided for David and they submitted to David. They stood with him in exile and suffering so that one day they might share with him in the kingdom. 
the men in the cave of Adullam also looked to David for protection because the moment they became David's followers, they became Saul's enemies. In the same way, the moment you identify yourself with Jesus Christ, you stir up the anger of the enemy of your soul. You become the target of the powers of darkness, and therefore you must look to the Lord for safety. His followers in the cave also look to David for reward. There is a day coming when the rejected Christ will be crowned Lord of all, and those who follow him now will abundantly be rewarded when they enter into the joy of the Lord. And in his final application here, just as these men came to David and they were trained by David, protected by David, and one day rewarded by David, that too is what the Lord Jesus wants to do in us, to train us, protect us, and one day reward us. So God is going to greatly use David in the lives of these men, but God is using these men in the lives of David to fashion a leader like the world has seldom seen. A man of empathy, a man who can understand, who will not use his leadership to abuse people. He will not be self-serving, but he will serve as a shepherd, tenderly caring for the sheep. David's been a good shepherd to sheep. Now he's learning to be a shepherd of men. In verse 3 it says, And David went from there to Mizpah of Moab. And he said to the king of Moab, Please let my father and my mother come and stay with you until I know what God will do for me. Why Moab? Why just his parents? Probably his parents are too old to live in a cave. Probably would have killed him. David knew it. So he's got to find a better place for them to live. And the reason for Moab, we know from the book of Ruth. Ruth was David's father's grandmother. Because Ruth was from Moabite. And so his grandparents, his grandmother was a Moabite. I don't know that David ever knew his great-grandparents, but I think it's not hard to believe that David's father knew his grandparents. He probably knew Boaz and Ruth. Maybe even had spent some time already in Moab meeting the relatives. And so it was the natural place to take David's family, his, his mom and dad, during this time of intense persecution. Verse 5 is just a, almost an incidental verse, far, but far from it. The prophet Gad said to David, Do not stay in the stronghold. Depart and go into the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest of Hereth. And we keep reading. Slow down. The prophet Gad... Who is he and where did he come from? Remember the previous chapter, 21? David is lying to the priest so that he can have a bit of bread. And then David is playing insane because he's gone down to the king in Gath and he realizes his life is in danger. And all the while, David didn't need to lie. He didn't need to to protect himself. God was more than willing to give him the exact word he needed to guide him and protect him. And now we see the first hint of that. This unknown prophet, never mentioned before, just steps into the scene and says, this is what God wants you to do. And so he says, go to Judah. Well, that seems like common sense. Judah is David's tribe. And if anybody in Israel was going to protect David, it would have been his own tribe. 
Sometimes the leading of God makes good sense on the surface. And there are other times the leading of God doesn't seem to make such good sense. And God doesn't owe us an explanation. He just says, do it. And that is played out in these coming verses. So David went to Judah, and then um, he ends up having to flee again. Chapter 23, we're told that David, not reading the other part of 22, because we, we, we looked at it briefly last Sunday, in that rest of the chapters when Saul um, has um, Doag the Edomite kill all the priests from the city of Nob. And then chapter 23, then they told David, saying, Behold, the Philistines are fighting against Keilah, and they are plundering the threshing floors. So David did what? He charged off. No, he inquired of the Lord. He's learning that the best leadership is not a self-directed leadership. The best leadership is not motivated by good motives, but it is motivated by the will of God. I need to hear that. Because I have this strong sense of justice, and I was a, you know, picked on enough as a kid that, that I hate it when other people are being picked on. And I, every fight's a good fight as far as I'm concerned. And David's going, I'm, I'm learning. Not every fight is the fight God wants me to fight. And there are some things you need to just leave in the hands of God. And there are other things that God says, you know, step in and... and and start swinging. And this is one where God says, step in and get involved. But he asked God. So David inquired of the Lord, saying, shall I go and attack these Philistines? He didn't just assume he knew what God's will was. And something that seems so basic and so straightforward, because the Philistines were the enemies of God's people. David didn't just assume he knew God's will. Lord, what should I do? And God says, go, attack the Philistines and deliver Keilah. But David's men said to him, behold, David's men said, behold, this doesn't make sense. We are afraid here in Judah. How much more if we leave Judah and go to Keilah? Because this is in the area where Saul is reigning. And they're going, we're not real safe here with your own people, David. If we leave this territory, we're going to come right out in the open where Saul can get us. And so David's saying, maybe I didn't hear God. Because sometimes God's will just doesn't make sense. And everybody around us can be saying, what? Have you lost your mind? And David goes, well, let me ask God again. So he goes back and asks the Lord once more. And the Lord answered him and said, Arise and go down to Keilah, for I will give the Philistines into your hand. And he went. And the people went with him. 400 men who thought it was nuts. You know what some of these 400 men become? The 30 mighty men of David. Men of faith who will have their own miraculous exploits in the name of God. Those mighty men were not mighty men just because they had great victory in battles. They were mighty men because those va- the victory in battle was because of their faith in God. Where did they see that? In David. 
See, David's going, I, and I know it doesn't make sense. I know the odds are against us. We, I know see, these guys have never fought a battle. They went from living in a cave to now they're going to fight against the Philistines. And they're going, right. And David says, we're going to trust God here. And David's faith inspired faith in the lives of these other men. And God raises up some of those men to become men themselves of great faith and, and, and great valor that God uses to bring deliverance for Israel. And God is shaping a man to lead by faith and to inspire faith in others. How can you inspire faith in others? You've got to be in a place where you need God. And you can't live this life from your own merits or your own strength or your own ability. All you can do is say, God, it's you or it's we fail. And then you can, as you walk in that kind of faith obedience, and people see God at work, they go, you know, that's what I want. And we become the kind of leaders, whether it's moms and dads or business owners or people in ministry, we all lead in one way or another. And that leadership is either like the world or it is like Christ. And it's either inspiring confidence in self or inspiring confidence in God. And David, by the grace of God, is being used by God to inspire confidence, faith in other men. And so they went, verse 5. So David and his men went to Keilah, and they fought with the Philistines. And he led away their livestock and struck them with a great slaughter. Thus David delivered the inhabitants of Keilah, just as God said would happen. Quickly now, verse 6. Now it came about when Abathar, the son of Ahimelech, the surviving priest of the town of Nob, fled to David at Keilah, that he came down with an ephod in his hand. And it was told Saul that David had come to Keilah, and Saul said, God has delivered him into my hand, for he has shut himself entering into a city with double gates and bars. He's trapped. So Saul summoned all the people for war to go down to Keilah to besiege David and his men. So David knew that Saul was plotting evil against him. So he said to Abathar the priest, bring the ephod here. Then David said, O Lord God of Israel, thy servant has heard for certain that Saul is seeking to come to Keilah to destroy the city on my account. Will the men of Keilah surrender me into his hand? Will Saul come down just as thy servant has heard? O Lord God of Israel, I pray, tell your servant. And the Lord said, He's coming. Then David said, Will the men of Keilah surrender me and, and, and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, Yep, they're going to surrender you. Then David and his men, about 600 at this time, arose and departed from Keilah, and they went wherever they could go. They scattered. And it was told Saul that David had escaped from Keilah, and, and, he, came, and he gave up the pursuit. And David stayed in the wilderness in the strongholds, and he remained in the hill country in the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul sought him every day, but God did not deliver him into his hand. So what is this about? Betrayal. Thanklessness. David delivered this city, and now the city is going to turn him over to Saul. Why would they do that? Because they're acting as normal human beings. And they remembered not very far away in the city of Nob, Saul destroys an entire city of priests. And probably their families and their livestock, he slaughtered them because he just suspected 
that they were treacherous toward him. And now you've got a whole city who is harboring David and 600 other men. If Nob is going to die for giving David a, few, a little bit of bread, how much more we're going to be assaulted and wiped out for giving him refuge. And so they go, no, thank you. We will turn him over. David is not our deliverer. He's our problem. And so David has to flee for his life. Very little gratitude. What's David learning in this? He's learning what the heart of man is like. He's learning not to put his trust and confidence in men. The scripture tells us about Jesus. Knowing what was in the heart of man, he did not entrust himself to men. And it's a hard lesson to learn. But I appreciate what Oswald Chambers says about that verse of Scripture, that even though he knew it was in the heart of man and did not entrust himself to men, Oswald Chambers says he was never cynical and never suspicious, never hard-hearted, because his trust was in God. And he knew what God could do in the hearts of men. Jesus' trust was never in men, but he was never suspicious, never hard, never callous toward men. He gave his life for the very men that he could not trust. Amazing. One of the Proverbs says, Many a man proclaims his own loyalty, but who can find a trustworthy man? Who can find a trustworthy city? And David is learning to trust God and not men. But David will also never be a man who does this to anybody. God uses this again, this pain that this causes him. And he writes again more psalms about this experience. It's devastating to David. Psalm 142 and Psalm 57 were written in connection with these events. And when he's living in a cave, in his heart turning to God. And so David fled again. Saul's looking for him and can't find him. But Jonathan does. Isn't that amazing? One of the lowest points in David's life. In gratitude, the people that he has saved their lives will turn on him and see him murdered. It's a low point in David's life. I remember a dad telling me one time that one of his sons, a Christian dad who loved his kids, not perfect, no, no dad is, but he was a committed Christian and a committed father. And one time his adult son just so berated him. Just, just, it was so hurtful to this loving dad. He told me, he says, Charlie, I curled up on the floor in a fetal position while my son stood over me and screamed at me. Betrayal. Gave his life for his kids. And then have one of his kids treat him that way. This is where David is. And at this low point in his life, verse 15, David became aware that Saul had come out to seek his life while David was in the wilderness of Ziph at Horish. And Jonathan, Saul's son, arose and went to David at Horish and encouraged him in God. What a friend. I don't know why books haven't been written on Jonathan. He is an amazing guy. And God hides David from Saul 
but allows Jonathan to find him. That in itself would say something again to David. God is my protection. And God is my encourager. And when he knows I need encouragement, he will move heaven and earth to give me the encouragement that I need, as only God can do. And he brings this good man at the right time in a place where Saul and all of his army can't find him. And Jonathan just comes walking on the scene like he knew the address. He encourages him in the Lord. Doesn't encourage him in his circumstances. Doesn't give him say, oh, David, this is all going to pass. He doesn't say, it's okay now, David. No false, superficial encouragement. But he encourages him in God. The kind of encouragement that God wants us to receive and to give. Deep encouragement. Spirit-level encouragement. I heard somebody say the other day that he just, we've heard the saying, every cloud has a silver lining. That doesn't encourage anybody to say that. This one guy says, yeah, and every silver lining has a cloud. <laughs> I wish I'd thought of that. But the kind of encouragement that Jonathan gave to David was on that spirit level, not based upon circumstance. So much encouragement that churches give today Think about what you're hearing. If you just honor God with your finances, God will make you rich. If you just believe God, he'll make you well. Really? That's the kind of encouragement that I I don't need that kind of encouragement. I need the kind of encouragement that says that when everything is falling apart, I have a God who stands strong. I have a rock who will not leave me. That's the encouragement that Jonathan brings to David. He didn't say, hey, David, it's all going to be gone. He says, David, turn to God. Trust in God. He's not forgotten you. He has not forsaken you. And when we read the Psalms here, again, that David wrote, we know David did just that. He turned to God and was encouraged in him. In verse 19 of chapter 23, the Siphites came to Saul at Gabeah, and they said, we know where David is, and we will hand him over to you. Is David not hiding with us in the strongholds at Horish, on the hill of Hakalah, which is on the south side of Jeshimon? Now then, O king, come down according to all the desire of your wicked soul. Doesn't say that's my redemption. (laughs) And our part shall be to surrender him into the king's hand. Traitors. And David said, and Saul said, and may, the, may you be blessed in the Lord, for you have had compassion on me. Wicked man using spiritual language. Go now, make more sure, and investigate, and see his place where his haunt is, and, and who he has seen, and who has seen, has seen him there. For I am told that he is a very cunning man. So look and learn about all the hiding places where he is hiding himself. And then return to me with certainty, and I will go with you. And it shall come about, if he is in the land, that I will search him out among all the thousands of Judah. Then they arose, and they went to Ziph before Saul. Now David and all of his men who were in the wilderness of Masan in the Arabah to the south of Jeshimon. And when Saul and his men went to seek him, they told David, and he came down to the rock and stayed in the wilderness of Maon. 
And when Saul heard of it, he pursued David in the wilderness of Maon. And Saul went on the side of the mountain, and David and his men on the other side of the mountain. And David was hurrying to get away from Saul, for Saul and his men were surrounding David and his men to seize them. It is over. Saul has had a road map given to him. He knows exactly where David is. He split his forces, and he's surrounding David as David's running around trying to get away from him. And then verse 27, when there is no hope, but a messenger came to Saul saying, hurry and come, for the Philistines have made a raid on the land. So Saul returned from pursuing David, and he went to meet the Philistines. Therefore, they called that place the Rock of Escape. And David went up from there and stayed in the strongholds of Engedi. One more time, God is protecting his man. When there is no hope, there is nothing that David can do. All he can do is just say, God, he's running, but he can't run fast enough, far enough. And God, at the right moment, brings a message to Saul. You need to leave. Beg off. And Saul did. David is learning that the true king doesn't need to protect himself. The true king never needs to become self-defensive, never needs to, to lash out and threaten other people in protection of himself. The true king knows his life is in the hands of God, and he can trust in him, rest in him, and not become a persecutor and an aggressor toward others. God is raising up a man after his own heart, raising up a leader like this world is seldom seen by taking him through trials that no one would ever wish on even their own enemy. It's God's way. David will be able to, to say, as he looks back over his life, it's been the grace of God. When there will be people that want to, will want to praise David for being such an exceptional king, David will say, it's normality. And it's not because I'm a great man. It's because God allowed difficult things, awful things, to happen to me, to show me that I am just as capable of being another Saul. And I don't want to be another Saul. So God's let these things happen to me so I can know firsthand what it's like to be the persecuted, to be the abused, and by the grace of God, spend my life caring for others, loving others, serving others, and not being to them what I know it feels like to be on that end. God's doing the same thing in you and me so that all that is true of Christ and not this world, would be reflected and reproduced in us. That all those beautiful words in the Sermon on the Mount would just be breaking forth in each of our lives as we come to Jesus and say, Jesus, I don't want to be like this world. But if being like you means I have to be hated by this world, then I'd rather be like you. I'll close this in prayer. Lord, it's clear from your word that we can't say yes to Jesus 
and be loved by this world. This world is in the hands of the enemy, and it hates Christ. And I pray, Lord, in the years that you give us, that our lives would be more and more transformed into the very likeness of Jesus, not conformed to this world, that Jesus would be seen in us, that we would receive, God, all that you allow to come into our lives and allow you to work it in us for your glory and for the character of Christ to be formed in us. We know your word says that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance proven character, and proven character a hope which does not disappoint. So Lord, work in us a yielded heart that we would be like Jesus who lived in absolute yieldedness to the Father. Carve us out, God, from this world that is so bent on its own good and self-preservation, capable of all manner of evil in that desire to exalt itself. I pray, God, that we would walk humbly with you and allow you, Lord, to make a different kind of man and woman, one that is normal in your eyes. In Jesus' name, amen.